We've been going through the Old Testament book from the exilic period, book of Nehemiah. And uh, for those of you that have not been around, just a quick catch up. Nehemiah was born in captivity in Babylon. <clears throat> he was probably a eunuch who was serving as the personal bartender of the king Artaxerxes. This was a man who knew who he was. And one day, a fellow by the name of Hananiah came with some buddies from Jerusalem, and they, they, Nehemiah asked them, what's going on in Jerusalem? How are the people there, and what about Jerusalem? And they said to him, the people are in reproach and despair. The walls have been torn down, and the, uh, the gates are burned. And this was a symbolic reproach to the living God, the, the Lord God. And Nehemiah, when he heard this news, it says that he wept. And during the next four months, he prayed. And as a result of his prayer, he had an attitude much like Isaiah, who said, here am I, send me. He became the answer to his prayer. And in much fear and trepidation, he went to King Artaxerxes and laid it all on the line. His faith was way out on the limb. And Artaxerxes' heart had been prepared by the living God, and he supported Nehemiah in his desire to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. 800 miles by camel later, Nehemiah arrived, and there he organized the rebuilding of the walls. During that time, they faced incredible persecution from without. It was just unending. The local warlord tried to bring an army against them to stop the building of the wall. There was opposition from within. There was discouragement. There was fatigue. And there was fear. And Nehemiah dealt with all of these things. And that brings us, finally, they built the wall when it actually came to building it. They built it in 52 days because it says the people had a heart to work. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had, had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah. And Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard. Let them shut the and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the homes were not rebuilt. Then my God put into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity. 
of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Hamamiah, Hananiah, and Alalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalal
Watergate is synonymous with the revival and great national hope. In church history, revival has been a major feature of God's sovereign work. The term revival simply means to restore or renew to a previous state. Jesus, speaking to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. A formula of revival is remember, repent, and return. And then do. Two ingredients of revival, the revelation of God's word and the response of God's people. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 13, it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Vision there in Hebrew is ro'eh. And it's a reference to special revelation, revealed revelation from God. In other words, where there is no access to the word of God, the people will perish. And in judgment of Israel of their apostasy, God said through the prophet, I am going to bring a famine not of bread or of thirst for water, but a famine of the word of God. And the people perished over time when the word of God was removed from their presence. A brief review of revival in the last 500 years begins in the Protestant Reformation of Germany. Listen as I read. 500 years ago in Germany, God lit lit a fire in the hearts of several men. As God burned his word into the hearts of these few, it wasn't long before such great lights as Melanchthon, Calvin, Zwingli, and, of course, Luther began to carry the torch to all of Europe. And here's the key. The Bible came into the hands of the people, and gradually the old formalism of the church was replaced with living, vibrant Christianity. And at the same time, or just preceding that actually in England, John Wycliffe was the first to translate the Bible into English, and through him it was published widely in the English Isles. Much of the time of his life he was in exile, hiding from the Queen of England in France. Another great revival is recorded in Scotland. It's centered in the person of John Knox, who in his zealotry referred to Mary, Queen of Scots, as that old Jezebel. The people referred to her as Bloody Mary. You may remember if you studied that period of history. She is to have said, I fear the tongue and pen of Knox more than all the armies of England. Perhaps the best known to us are the English and American revivalists, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and D.L. Moody. John Whitfield, excuse me, John Wesley traveled 225,000 miles by horseback, preaching over 40,000 sermons. His brother Charles wrote over 8,000 hymns. Perhaps the best known one to us is O for a Thousand Tongues, to sing my great Redeemer's love. Like Luther, Knox, and Wycliffe, the Wesleys put the Bible and the church into the hands of the people. Thus, Methodism, or the Methodists. At one point in frontier epic of America, over half of the were Methodist. The revelation of God's word and the response of God's people, quite honestly, is the need of our day. 
We need revival. I need revival. Perhaps you need revival. In 21st century America, Christians are generally affluent, comfortable, and living securely with little thought of anything or anybody but themselves. And that is an indictment against most of us, if we're honest. For most Christians in America, Christianity has come down to little more than attending church, and then only when it's convenient. As with all revivals in history, two things happened. First was the magnification of God's word, and that was followed by the people of God becoming mobilized. Why the word of God? Because as Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Hebrews chapter 4.12 speaks of the effect of the word of God in people's lives. It changes lives. It doesn't it, it, it doesn't just reform, it transforms lives. In Hebrews 4.12, we read that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible is the only book that I read that I don't evaluate because it evaluates me. So the discerner of the thoughts and the intents I have my nose in that book quietly before the Lord almost every day of my life. And were, not, were that not true, I wouldn't be standing here today. The Watergate revival in Nehemiah began with the magnification of God's word. And we see this in the attitudes of the people. In verse 1 of chapter 8, the people gathered and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. And we see it in their response in verse 3. Then Ezra read, from morning until midday, and all the people were attentive. You think I preach long sermons. From morning until midday. I was at a particular committee meeting in, a, in the church in Anchorage a number of years ago, and the subject came up as to how we could better communicate with the congregation, and immediately a lady named Debbie Kate said, oh, Pastor Larry, you should preach longer sermons. That would... Sharp cookie. I get all kinds of abuse. Not just Dan, huh, Dan? We take a lot of abuse around here. Their response was attentive, and their reaction was reverent. When Ezra opened the book, the people stood. And their relationship to God as a result of its message is reflected in verse 6. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When the word was read, they honored the word. When I was commercial fishing a number of years ago in uh, Chignik in the Aleutian, uh, Aleutian Peninsula, I attended the only church that was there once. It was a formal liturgical church. 
which practiced a tradition of standing when the Bible was opened and read. It's pretty impressive, actually. But these same people later that evening would be sloppy drunk and engaged in unspeakable immorality. It was a mere form. Worship is not about form. It's not the state of the art. It's the state of the heart. That is true for all of us. Jesus said to the woman at the well that the Father seeks such to worship him, those who will worship in spirit, genuine, real, from the heart, rooted and based upon truth. Spirit and truth is what uh, is the requirement for true worship. Now here, they worshiped in a way that penetrated their heart. They said, Amen. They lifted their hands and they bowed in, in respect and worship. And then they called the Levites. They ministered the word. Verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, and a bunch of other guys, along the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. That was from morning to midday. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Their motivation was simply to help them understand. This was their ministry of the Word of God, and it was their singular motivation. There's a verse of Scripture I'd like us to turn to in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And the things, this is Paul speaking to his son in the faith in the pastoral epistle. Uh, Timothy, a young pastor, he said, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I thought so. I'm reading the wrong text. Chapter 4, verse 2. But that was relevant. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. This hasn't happened to me very often. Generally, I find that when it's necessary to, necessary to convince and to rebuke, based upon the Word of God, the people of God appreciate that, generally speaking, because it's what the Word says. But I am finding that in our culture, in the Christian culture at large, 
Our people have become more and more and more used to going to church where the preacher's goal is to help them feel good about themselves. That's probably the last thing we should be doing as teachers and preachers of the Word of God. We should be exhorting and rebuking and bringing clear the the demands of the Word of God upon our lives rather than trying to tickle the ears and make people feel good about themselves. I find that most of the preaching that I, I see and hear, not all of it, but so much of it, it's about how to, three steps, four principles to make yourself feel good about yourself. So much of the preaching is not from the Word of God, but it's to the Word of God, and then usually taken out of context with one verse that will somehow make the preacher's point somehow valid. My goal is not to help you feel good about yourself when you come here on Sunday mornings. My goal is to confront you with the truth of the Word of God. And I have learned that joy, true joy, the, the, the door that opens joy in a person's life, that door is called repentance. God did not save us in our sin, but from our sin. And until we are confronted with the truth of God's word about the compromise, the apathy, and the sin that is rooted in our lives, we will never know as a people true gladness and true joy. You can know circumstantial happiness, but you'll never know joy when sin is not confronted in our lives. And folks, That's what revival is all about. Dealing with the sin that takes root in our lives. As a young pastor out of seminary, I didn't have a clue about what a pastor was to do. One thing I was sure, that a pastor is supposed to have a bulletin on Sunday morning. And and, and me and my wife spent 16 hours with one of those old-fashioned mimeograph machines putting a bulletin together. We finally got it together. You had to cut it in half to type, type on it. Then you glued it back together and you run it off. Well, we did all of that. We glued it backwards and had to start all over. 16 hours and one near divorce later, we had our first bulletin. But one thing I did know for sure, and that was, number one was teaching the Word of God. The Word of God changes lives It is the foundation for all that a church is to be. So, as an inexperienced pastor and preacher, I stormed the throne room of God. Lord, enable me to teach the text in a way that is understandable and makes sense. And the Holy Spirit will do the rest. If you want to compliment me about a sermon And if you mean it, say, Pastor, I understood what you said this morning, and it made sense. If point B follows A, and point C follows B, and they all explain the theme of the text, I've done my job. It's the text. It's not the eloquence of any preacher that's going to change lives. It's the Word of God applied by the Holy Spirit that changes lives. Motivation is everything. 
If I didn't believe that the Word of God changes lives, I can tell you right now, I wouldn't have spent the last 44 years teaching the Word of God. I'd have been selling insurance, and I'd be filthy rich. I think I could have made a lot of money selling insurance or doing something else. But I believe the Word of God truly does, applied by the Holy Spirit, truly changes lives. Why did the Levites minister the Word? That it might bring understanding, and here's how they did it. And take note, Bible teachers. They declared what it said, they explained what it meant, and they illustrated how it applied. Here's what it says, here's what it means, and here's what, we're, what we can do about it. The power of God's word to change lives is lost when the text is not central to the word of God. And I would just want to ask you, <clears throat> do you have your nose in the book? Quietly, before the Lord, on a regular basis, are you into the word of God? If you are, and your heart is right before the Lord and you come to him, Lord, speak to me through your word. He will. And I want to say this too. 95% of the problems that we face in our lives would be resolved if we would only understand what the word of God says and then do what it says. The Christian counselors, so-called, most of them, so-called, would be put out of business if Christians were in the Word of God every day and doing what it says to do. I firmly believe that. When God's Word is truly magnified, revival mobilizes God's people. True revival not only mobilizes God's people, but they become passionate disciples. The gospel that Jesus preached was very simple. Follow me. I think I shared this at another time. I, I don't remember for sure. But former pastor here, Dan Thornton, coined a term. The term that he coined was re- baptismal, excuse me, decisional regeneration. The whole idea that you make a decision to follow Christ, you sign on the dotted line, you say a little prayer, and then you go your merry way. You've got your fire insurance for heaven. And I've been railing about this for several years because there are millions of so-called Christians in America who are not. And they're their reliance and their faith is based upon something they, little formula they followed at some point in their life. But the rest of their life from then on was not following Jesus. It was not being obedient to him. It wasn't submission to his authority in their life. It was just a a religious thing that they did. And it's a false hope. We receive Christ that we might follow him. I'm saying this to ask. Are you one of those? Your faith is in decisional regeneration. You made a decision at some time. What did it do in your life? Has there been any change? Has there been any transformation in your life? That would give evidence to the fact that you were sincere and it was real. And you are obeying the gospel of Christ, which was, follow me. I say that from the bottom of my heart because I know 
There are millions of people who think they're Christians who are as unsaved as a fence post. There's no evidence in their life. There is no following of Jesus. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those whom nothing is prepared. (coughs) For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Lephites quieted the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and rejoiced greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. They recognized their neediness. When brought face to face with the scripture, they responded by weeping. Call that repentance. They saw how far they fell short of the of what God had revealed. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Immediately following this response, Nehemiah and the leader said, Don't stop there, that's just the beginning. Get up and live. In the history of revivals, there has always followed closely on its heels hospitals, orphanages, rescue missions, great mission enterprises, along with a focus on righteous living. And in the case of the Israelis, this meant, before all else, obedience to their temple worship. Their heart was engaged. Thus, so also were their hands. Verse 14. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. With their hands, they immediately began to build booths to celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles, which commemorated the deliverance from Egypt and the Passover redemption. And the rest of this chapter describes their observance of the Feast of Booths and ends in verse 17 by saying, And there was very great gladness. In verse 18, Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. And back up in the second half of verse 17, it says, For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very, very great gladness. How did this come about? It was based upon their desire for God's word. The heads and all the people gathered in order to understand It was based upon the details of God's word that they found written there. 
and it was blessed by their delight in God's word. There was very great gladness. I want to leave you with this. Distinguishing between the means and the end. Nehemiah was tasked to do a short-term job. But beyond the wall building project was a goal Nehemiah never forgot. And it was all about the reproach against God's people and against God himself. That's why they were building the wall. A revived heart, a revived church doesn't just do what it does because that's just what churches do. And I'm afraid it's very easy to fall into that. Well, that's just what churches do. Well, we just do child evangelism, uh, excuse me, we just do vacation Bible schools. No, we did it with a purpose. And one of the things that, uh, I don't know if Bridget shared this with you, but we had over 70 kids here this week. And there was a two to one ratio of those who were leaders with the kids. A lot of great investment was made in the hearts of our little children this week. Find a vacation Bible school worker, say thank you. A revived church does what it does with an impassioned heart because it recognizes the need for and the value of changed lives through, the God, through God's word. And I just want to leave you with this question in light of this message this morning about revival. Has your Christianity become little more than attending church when it suits? There's more. There's so very, very much more. Last week, Don Stubbs and Travis Troyer were here. For part of the time, they shared about their ministry of Off the Wall, which is a discipleship ministry for singles age 18 to 25. If you're married, you're disqualified. You can't go. You can't be a part of this ministry. One of those who did go was Lauren Countryman, who um, I interviewed last Sunday. And what really tugged at my heart was when she said the -the off-the-wall ministry did not change her life. It was at the off the wall ministry where she learned to love Jesus. That's where revival is at. Do we love Jesus? Over and over, if keep my commandments, be obedient to me, relate to me as I truly am. God the creator and final judge, as well as your savior and wannabe friend. It's a question I ask myself over and over. Do I love Jesus? And the answer is found in my being obedient to him. So ask yourself, has sin taken root in your life? Are there areas of that you know need to be dealt with? That is where revival begins, being honest with and being ruthlessly honest with God about the condition of your heart. Father, I pray that you would bring revival. Nothing would more upset 
than a Holy Spirit revival. But it would be upsetting in a very positive and good way. Lord, as individuals, may we come before you and before your word, which is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. So, Father, might we be honest before you. Face and deal with those things that you would expose that are contrary to you that are in our lives. That's where revival begins. And that's where we need to begin. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.